Looking to create wealth and income through high cash flowing real estate? Self-storage is the fastest growing and the newest real estate asset that has outperformed all others. What's its secret? I'm AJ Osborne, and with over a million square feet that we have built, acquired, expanded, and even converted big box stores from small third tier markets to large hundred plus thousand square foot facilities, we have seen it all. This is the podcast that we're going to discuss and bring on the best investors and operators in the nation to show you how to create wealth and income with self-storage. Welcome to Self-Storage Income. Hey, everybody, before we get started into this episode, which I have to say, it's a big one. It's an hour and a half. This episode was awesome. I had so much fun on this interview. You're going to learn so much. We talk everything from getting started to niches, RV boat storage. We talk about where storage is headed, how to understand value, working with brokers. There is so much information to unpack. I did want to let you guys know, right at the first, there were some sound um, issues or, we, or technology issues we were having just cut out a little. But after that, the whole entire podcast is awesome, fine. But I also wanted to remind you guys about our sponsors, two great sponsors. We talk a lot about technology in this episode. We talk about automation, Janus, their no-key system, and their door products, everybody. You got to go check them out. It's amazing. They're on their third generation. We're installing them in one of our massive new builds we're doing. We've installed them in three other facilities. It sets us apart in the market. Um, also, to banking. Everybody, we know you guys are asking about it. Small business loans, SBA, that's a huge topic today. Where are rates at? Live Oak Bank has rates that are just absolutely crazy, unbelievable, and they are actually a partner with you, right? These guys understand self-storage. This is their wheelhouse, and they take out all the headache of headache out of SBA loans. Go back and listen to our episode. It was, I think, probably five or six now at this point, but we're talking about that. They're experts in SBA and just traditional financing alone. So check them out. They're in our show notes. And guys, enjoy this podcast. It's a great one. Welcome, everybody, to Self-Storage Income. We have a great podcast today, as always, with Drew. And I am so excited. I actually uh, got in contact with Drew on Twitter. There's a great self-storage community um, around Twitter now, which I'm, I'm, I'm new to this. Um, but I saw all these deals that he was just doing, just getting under contract. It got me so excited. So I asked him to come on here so we could, uh, talk about it and hear his experience. And as I was talking to him just now, he just got a couple deals and he's waiting for his next one to come under contract today. So without further ado, Drew, how you doing, man? Man, AJ, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. Um, I'm honored to be here. You've had some awesome guests, folks like Lance Watkins, super bright people. And uh, so I'm honored to be here. And I love your content. Um, it's such a huge value add for the industry of, of giving all this stuff away and helping folks like me and everybody else. Thank you. 
Hey, man, thank you for coming on and sharing with us your experiences. Um, as we were talking about before, self-storage industry is on a roar. And I just love people that are getting in, that are killing it, that are doing great, and able to share their experiences and how they're doing it and the success they're having with others so we can all be successful. So, you know, you have been interested in the space. We connected. You got a few deals coming in right now that are under contract. You are like, you're starting this year off with a bang, man. Right. Yeah. Um, we've just closed our first two storage facilities. Um, and I got a th third one under contract today. That's looking really good. Um, I'm just excited. And I'll tell you kind of why I love self storage. Well, let me kind of back up a little bit. I started off in uh, a commercial real estate brokerage, had the opportunity to sell kind of a hundred million dollars or so of investment real estate across the country. But my goal was always to move from the brokerage side to the ownership side of the ball for all the reasons we love real estate, uh, income, the appreciation, appreciation, all these great things. Um, my wife did some training in Michigan. And so we moved from Louisiana to Michigan in 15 and um, I wanted to sharpen my skills. So I went to work for head of acquisitions at a private equity shop from Manus had some great training up there, great mentorship, um, kind of looking behind the hood on how to structure documents, fundraising, managing assets across state lines. Um, so it was a wonderful experience. You know, my wife and I have a child, we have another child. It's really cold in Michigan. And so we decided, listen, we need to come on home. Oh, hey, I lost you, man, you there? You there? I lost you. Shoot. Office properties. Hey, hey man, I'm sorry. I lost you that whole time. Okay. Man, our internet is not working great, is it? Let me see here. Is this better? I think that that's better. Is this better? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, you're coming in clear now. So, um, okay, let's go back to here. We lo I lost. Do you want to hear that stuff? Does that matter? Yeah, 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 yeah. I want to hear about it. So, um, I'll, I'll kind of go back and just do a little back here thing, and then we'll start again. Okay. So you're telling us we had a little technical difficulties here, but you're talk to, talking to us about your past and um, where you came from. Now, you were mentioning you went over to a firm to start working. Who was that with? Right. So I went to work for ProManus in Ann Arbor, Michigan, um, kind of head of acquisitions over there. Uh, really had some great mentorship and great training over there on kind of how to run properties across state lines, manage a large portfolio, how to structure documents, how to raise capital. Um, so it was really just some great training ground to see behind the hood on something that I had never even heard of. You know, this wasn't a thing in Louisiana 10 years ago. So my wife and I, we have our, our first son and we have another son. We realize it's really cold in Michigan and we head on back home to Louisiana. So 2018, um, I'm out kind of looking for deals, end up buying about 150,000 square feet of industrial product. We've got great tenants like Exxon and Johnson Controls. Uh, we end up buying a few um, office medical properties, which again are great lease to physicians, very sticky tenants, great rents. Um, 
but the whole time I'm looking, I'm looking at how do we scale this business? You know, I have some good deals. Is this just a luck thing? How do, how do we grow and sustain this? Um, I was on to self storage three or four years ago with 10 federal seeing kind of success they're having mm-hmm. red dot obviously has done some great work. And so I kind of revisited this self storage idea in COVID deal flow really slowed down. Um, I kind of did some writing. I, I wrote an essay called self storage has a problem. And it essentially it's the problem that we all know that, you know, a lot of folks don't take credit card, limited website, I had a good friend who owns a self-storage facility and um, he had to go in person with an ID to pay rent or else he was going to get kicked out. I mean, it's just insane to me, like how this is the thing in 2020. Yes. Um, and, and so that was kind of the first light bulb. The second light bulb was I'm having lunch with my banker and he's telling me this was, this is April. Okay. Heart of COVID, right? Yes. He's telling me, Drew, we have these 80-year-old grandmas who come in the bank every Monday to talk to the teller and get their money. Now they're doing it all over their iPhones. The light bulb went off. Like if grandmas in Louisiana can get on technology, this is happening. It's happening quick. And it's time to really revisit this self-storage concept. So um, essentially in October, I burned the boats, committed to self-storage, built a database where, you know, ramped up our learning. Um, and here we are, you know, 90 days later on two facilities, hopefully a third under contract uh, today. And uh, I'm just so excited for a lot of reasons about self-storage that, that we can go into. Okay. So, um, you know, I think a lot of people hearing this, and, and this is why I'm so excited to have you on the podcast you know, you kind of went from this idea where you're the light bulb, right? I get it. I see the opportunity to some planning, education, and then you pulled the trigger. You have two and you're, you know, going to get this next one in co- under contract. You're just waiting for it back today. Like that is you moved, right? Like, how did you find those first two deals? And how did you know, like, how did you get to that point? Like, did you know exactly what you were looking for? Did you go contact? How'd you get that? Right. So, you know, again, I have a little bit of experience from a brokerage background and also ownership. So I I wasn't starting at zero, Mm -hmm. but um, I'm a really big believer in two things in real estate. One is value. Do you understand value and do you understand margin of safety? And so that means we're going to look at our occupancy. We're going to look at our price per pound, price per door, our cap rate. I'm just not interested in buying six caps where I can expand 6,000 square feet to get my upside on a, on a 15,000 square foot facility. Um, but to, I think answer your question. So I get this all the time. How do you find deals, Drew? I'm going to steal your analogy, AJ. Be the bear. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's what you got to do. There, there is no magic bullet, but there are three magic bullets. One, build relationship with owners directly. Okay. Two, tell the world the business that you're in. That's your bankers. That's your friends. That's your parents' friends. Here's the, here's the value that I bring. If you want to invest in self-storage, we can allow you to invest with us and partner with us and get above average returns. And the last one is, is broker relationships. You know, I've probably bought 25 or 30% of the properties that we own through brokers. They provide a great service. 
Um, and so we work hard to nurture those relationships too. Okay. I love it. And, um, the deal time frame. could you walk me through that? Cause a lot of people getting start start up. I, so I have a few questions when you're first getting started, because a lot of these things were unknown to me. Like, even though you had some experience in real estate in the background, like when I got in, I, I really didn't. So I was very dependent on other people, right? Like I was right. very dependent on banks and brokers, and I was questioning myself a lot. And what is that time frame up to getting the deal look like? Like, what was it that you were doing? Because I feel like, too, some people, they get a deal and they get it under contract, and it's like they caught a tiger by the tail. You know what I mean? And it's right. like, oh, crap, what do I do with this thing? Right. Well, you know, I, I don't want to be too personal with you, but I'm, I'm just going to be personal with you. Um, you know, 2020 was the year we really had to do some soul searching and really had to say, where is my business going? What I am doing is not sustainable long-term. And I really gave my business to God. And I said, God, this is what I think I'm supposed to do with my life. I'm going to trust you and show me the next step. And, um, so that is a big part of it for me is, you know, just kind of having faith and working through those daily challenges. Like, Oh, this property's never been surveyed. Uh, we have to go back 80 years in the records to find it. And, or, you know, there's just all these little hurdles that come up daily and you just have to set them up and knock them down, I guess is the best way for me to describe it. I love it. I love it, man. That's awesome. And, you know, it's a great actually way to look at it. I can remember even after we'd had a couple, um, uh, it was three smaller facilities and uh, we were buying a big one and it was 3.5 million, which to me at the time, like it was one of those things where I was sitting up at night and yeah. I'm like, am I going to like it, almost like, you know, it's one of those times where you're going, listen, I've screwed stuff like this up in the past. Should I even be here? Should I even be doing this? Do I know what I'm doing? Right? Like this is so much money. And what if I let everybody that's investing in us down. Right. And, you know, it comes into those times where it, and the best way I thought of it to, and just like you mentioned is it was like, that's where faith kind of came in. And it was like, listen, you've checked all the boxes. You know what you're doing. You have other people, you have third parties that are confirming your underwriting and your decisions. Right now let's reach out and let's just figure out what to do with this. Let's get this thing under contract and let's focus on what needs to be done day to day. Because I didn't, I didn't clearly know that, that future, that, that press, I'd never had a facility that had an employee. Right. And I'm like, you know, what happens if they start selling and it wasn't located near me. So all of a sudden it was, you know, it was just, it was a big game changer. And the idea, just like you were saying there was honestly, I didn't know. And that was okay. That was fine. Um, I, yeah. I I still moved forward. You know, I moved forward. I had faith that I knew that I was doing the right things to make sure that I covered my bases, got rid of any downsides, and then you just kind of got to go forward. You, you got to. I mean, there is no secret answer. I mean, I love hearing those stories because I I try to stretch myself every day and continue to grow, continue to get outside your comfort zone. And, you know, to borrow from Howard Marks, who I'm a big fan of at Oak Tree Capital, you know, if we if we take care of the downside, the upside will take care of itself. 
which is what you just said, which is, you know, did I check all the boxes? Is my downside covered? Um, I love that. Yeah. I love that. And, and you start to grow a little bit of confidence in yourself. You know, that wasn't your first deal. You had three or four other deals yes. that you'd made money on. You probably did good on the residential home that you'd bought. And, and so you're slowly gaining confidence. And that's, I'm, I'm working hard to learn to trust my gut, which is really hard thing to do. Um, but fine tuning that sensor where you can say, man, it doesn't feel right. Man, don't like it. You know? Well, I, I love that idea too, of trusting your gut and how I always, you know, just along what, you know, Oak tree capital, that quote, you know, is just like, I, I view it and I always came because I, once I understand it, a few things, I said, I need to get a few things right. And everything else will not only take care of itself, but I can screw up on everything else and it'll still yep. be okay. And that's when I realized focus on just two things. That's it. Just get these two things right. And then you're protecting yourself from yourself. As in, I knew that I didn't know everything. I knew that I was an idiot. I gave myself space in my investment deals for me to mess up. That gave me so much comfort. Exactly. And, you know, we had a, we have this deal. We just bought this huge office building. It's right on a main exit, everything else like that. We've never seen anything like this done before. And it was like, okay, we're building multi-stories. We're ripping out office space. And it's, it was one of those projects where in any normal situation, not having experience, I would have always said no, because I'm like, I don't know exactly how this is going to play out. But I went back and I said, I know the two main things. And because of these two main things, this thing is a home run. And everything else, right, I can figure out on this and I'll be okay. And I think this idea, like you said, you limit your losses or you just understand the fundamentals so well that that gives you that sense of comfort, right? And then that rest, that, that place like you're doing right now, you know, walking so, you know, like, in faith or taking those, uh, you're comfortable doing that. Right. Well, I mean, that, what you're talking about is just so fundamental too. It, it brings you back to, you know, simplify until you can no longer simplify. And that's what you've done. You've taken the core elements, which I, I think are supply and demand and location. Are those that's the two things you're correct. referring to? Yes. The two unchangeable factors. And so if you can get those right, a lot of the stuff will take care of itself. Um, and then the, the, the challenge with that, to me, the paradox is getting your yield too, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you can't just go do that and buy five and a half caps in Austin. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, do you want to buy an 11 cap with, you know, 1500 people in a 10 mile? So therein lies how we create value in the chat and the puzzle for me is, is balancing that risk reward, which I think is a lot of fun. No, this is, you know, this is the proverbial box that you have opened, which I love. It's This is probably outside of actual value and how it's created. This paradigm between um, demand, growth markets, and good deals, this is my favorite topic ever because they sound at odds with each other. But once you understand the fundamentals of the business, they're not. Like just because you're in a small town doesn't mean there's not demand, right? And also mm-hmm. that margin of safety you're talking about, that's offset <laughs> at purchase price. So if I'm buying high purchase prices, that's inherent demand. Now, a lot of things have to go right, 
right? A lot of things have to go right for this thing to play out. But if I'm buying at a low purchase price where I have fundamental things that I can do to that asset class to increase its value, well, I, I have the demands there. It's known and I can increase the value. So I'm building out that margin of safety. Once again, I can screw up on a lot of things, but I bought the value, right? So yeah. that office building, it. I'm not buying the value, right? Like it cost yeah. a lot. The building itself was 4.5 million. And then I got to go and redo everything. So it's not like this is something that is, oh, there's just massive value in it. I can make a lot of mistakes. Now the demand though, and supply issue yeah. plus the location creates that margin of safety or that value in it. When you're in a small market, it's just the other side of it. Like you're talking about. Yeah. 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 It, it reminds me, a friend of mine was fortunate enough to have dinner with Warren Buffett at one of these fundraisers deals. That is very so fortunate. Table, he sit at the table with Warren Buffett and he's like, you know, help me understand your due diligence. Like what's the most important thing in your due diligence? And Mr. Buffett said one answer, price is my due diligence. And so that's kind of my view on some of these more rural markets. I mean, if we can get good value, high stabilized occupancy, our going in purchase price is our margin of safety, um, which gets me excited. I yeah. love that. When, you know, I got into self-storage for two reasons and two reasons only. Um, it was for cash flow and tax benefits. And I was trying to offset earned income. Um, with tax benefits, but also risk because uh, how how my earned income fluctuated, you know, and that that problem was not only solved in small markets, it was solved very, very well. And I think that the greatest opportunity in self-storage is not where I'm playing. It's not on the major intersections, right? And you're building the 10, $15 million buildings. That is not the greatest opportunity. That is where all the money's chasing. The greatest opportunity in self-storage is in smaller facility in markets that everybody else is overlooking. Um, right. Because there's a plethora. I'm, I'm a prime candidate. I, I'm, I bought two and I've got another one coming. I mean, it's there, you know? And, and that is... At the end of the day, too, you got to realize, like, I'm not chasing financial freedom anymore, right? right. That, that's not what I'm playing. That's not my game. Um, for someone starting out, financial freedom is solved where everybody else is not looking. And right. that's where it's uncovered. That's where it's found. And that's what and, I love about what you're doing right now. Yeah. And I'd like to pause right there. I mean, hats off to you for, look, you've built a base. You've got some nice assets and cash flow. You could take it to the barn. You know, you can be done and yet you're continuing to level up. You're continuing to figure out systems and strategies to grow your business, to make a difference, to help others. Um, and that's no small measure. You're still working hard and grinding. And so that's inspiring to me. Appreciate that. And, you know, it's it's funny, though, as, as you know, once you once you see something and understand something like I, I know, you know, I can just remember, you know, you're starting out and it's like, Wow. Like this works. And yeah. it's like, how have I not been doing this? And for me, it's like, you know, how do people not know about this? This is amazing. Yeah. Like yeah. it's, yeah. it's like you just discovered something great and, and that makes it fun. And that makes you want to go at it every day. Like I know you're the type of person too, that's not going to stop. 
right? You're yeah. going to keep going. Yeah. You're going to keep sharing. You're on here talking about your successes as opposed to saying, you know what, listen, the more people that know about this, maybe the less opportunity I'm going to get. So I'm not going to No, you're open about it. You're talking on, I see you on Twitter. I follow you. You're giving your secrets, what you're, what you're doing, what you're understanding. Um, and I, and as we talked about before, this is the stuff that not only helps other people, but it actually makes the industry better. Um, and when you're out there, you're building a portfolio, I assume, right? So let's talk kind of about right. what you're doing. You've, you got your two deals, you're getting another one on, under contract. What are you after right now? Like, what are you trying to accomplish? You know, I have thought so much about this. I've kind of had some long distance discussions with some guys who have, are really big time in industrial. I'd love to talk, chat with you more about this either here or later, but it's this concept of going big or going small. Um, essentially, I'm building a property management business along with my business that I'm building right now. And so I just hired a former Marine as head of operations. She's awesome. I've got an outbound sales guy helping me bird dog deals, who's awesome. Um, but, it, but it comes down to like, how big do you want to do? What do, what do you want for your life and your family? What are your priorities? Um, I think we all can agree that just chasing money is not happiness. Mm-hmm. But I do think I've got a talent or two for for trying to make this work and passionate about it. So I, I want to use those gifts to the best of my ability. Um, so those are the things I'm working on. I'm trying to delegate and ele- delegate and elevate so that I can do what I'm best at. I love it. You know, you mentioned you're you're building that uh, management company alongside with building your business, which that was my playbook. That's how I did it. Um, which. I got to tell you, it's kind of funny, but um, the first five years, uh, it's not like that yielded me a lot. In fact, it didn't, right? I could have easily pocketed all this money. Um, I worked multiple jobs. Literally, I I had a full-time job. I was running a a division of a brokerage firm, a national brokerage firm out here. And uh, um, we could have not done a lot of things, but... It was more with that long-term goal is was saying, how are we setting ourselves up? And it's different for everybody, right? And like you're setting it up where you're going, hey, I want to be in this industry. I'm looking at building further. And if you know that you need to do that, you also know you need certain tools to accomplish those things. And you have something that I think maybe you fell on sooner than I did, which is good because it's... uh it's a humility and a good way of understanding. I can't do this myself. And there's other people that are better at other things than I am. And I need to bring them on board and I'll grow faster if I do that. I don't know why it, I don't know if it's just stupidity or pride, but that always tends to get in my way. We have lots of employees now and I'm hiring again. We're hiring five more people right now, but it's like, I feel like I always just wait a little too long to do that. But that is so crucial in your growing part. And, and I've talked about this a lot, but surrounding yourself with people that are on your team that can execute and being able to let go of certain things. Yeah. Well, for me, I'm, I'm the kind of person, look, I'm in, I'm dealing with my money and investors money. And I'm the kind of person I want my hands on the plow at all times, all, all the tasks, I want everything. And it's, you're actually doing yourself a disservice and your investors a disservice because the folks who can get this off the ground have inherent flaws and drawbacks. 
Um, and you need people to balance those things out, to execute, to look at the details, all these other things to manage properties. Um, so you can't grow without a team, as you know. And, and so I'm working in that direction. Ah, uh, that's awesome. I love it. And I love, too, you also mentioned, I want to talk to you about this, is your hiring and people you hired. Um, it's interesting. I've always been under the uh, – uh, opinion that skills can be taught, but worth work ethic and honesty um, cannot. And so yep. I would rather hire a less qualified person and teach them how to do a skill as long as they're honest, right? They're really hardworking and adaptable. Um, and that's that's done very, very well for us. It sounds like from the people that you've hired, you've kind of taken that same approach. Yeah, so two influential books on my life have been Good to Great by Jim Collins, um, Right People, Right Seats, you know, and then Traction by Gino Wickman or Get a Grip. Um, and so to, to coalesce these two concepts down, it comes down to, look, one, you can't motivate people, okay? You need to get people who are motivated in the first place, put the right people in the right seats so the bus is headed in the right direction, and then um, two, I think it's really important to understand personality types. Maybe that's through a DISC survey or something, but different people are wired differently for different tasks. And if you can find a person with motivation and a natural inclination to execute these tasks, you've got yourself a, a potential winning formula. I, Yeah, it, it's this comes down to two that – the thing that we talked about that was the unknown part, right? When you're hiring people and you have good people, a lot of it is unknown. Like I, you know, we go through this hiring, we, especially on, so our employee breakdown, we have our um, part-timers, we have our full-time managers, we have our um, uh, uh, managers and trainers above that in our portfolio. Then we have our executive team. And then our executive team's all at the main office, Right. And then we have from there our sales team, things like that. Now, when hiring for a lot of these positions and as you're growing, I was hiring for things that I didn't like they were coming in. And it's not like I'm like, well, this is exactly how you do it, because I didn't know. Yeah. It was like, yeah. hey, we got to do this thing. Right. And I'm hiring you to help me figure out how to do this thing. And uh, um, right. that could be tough. Yeah, it's humbling, uh, but you're like, we're going to figure out the system together, okay? Mm -hmm. um. <laughs> and letting them know right off the bat, like my first meeting with them, I'm like, I don't exactly know what you're going to do day to day. And, you yeah. know, kind of, but here's where we need to go. Let's start getting together. Let's start figuring this out. You may screw up sometimes, but we need to be moving forward. Um, that can be really hard when starting out because I think we feel like we need to have all the answers. And that can be a huge disservice because inherently everybody knows that no one has all the answers. But especially when you're starting out, they're going, you know, you only own two facilities for a short period of time. Well, then how do yeah. you know how to hire people? How do you know what to do? And the point is, is right. you don't, nor do you need to. That's like a a weird mentality that holds people back, but I see it all the time. Right. Well, you don't need to have all the answers, but you do need to have a vision, yes. you know, um, where there is no vision that people will perish. And so your employees 
will look to you for that vision. And you need to have a one, three and 10 year goal. We have, I have all that written down. We have core values written down. We have metrics and, you know, get a grip is a great template for a vision traction organizer. If you want more information on it, but get um, a grip, is that important to have that vision? Yeah. It's, it's traction. Oh yeah. Is the book, but you know, Wickman and, and get a grip is a narrative form, which is just easier to grasp. Yeah. I also, I, I really enjoy vivid vision. Yes. So vivid vision is a way, is a great one as far as communicating with that, with other, uh, other people and your team. Um, it's something that, mm-hmm. you know, we've created and we're handing out to all new people that come on. Um, and, uh, two, I have very frank conversations with people when they come on and it's not about their job duties. It's not like, here's what I expect you to do every day. No, it's not that at all. It's, this is who we are. And if you're not okay with this, this is not the place for you to be because we're not changing who we are because you don't like it or anything else like that. And I, maybe that's a little coarse, but it is. And, and I don't, and I, our culture is very important to us because my people are giving up their lives to be here. Their lives. If you look at the time that they spend with us in comparison to how much time they spend with their kids at home, that's what they're giving up. And if you, wow. you know, that's really important for me to say we are going to be true to who we are and we need people that are true to who they are to come and be a part of us, or this will never work out in the long term. And hiring people for over a decade and hiring very expensive, high qualified people. It is not worth your time to bring somebody in that's not going to be there in two years, more or less five, 10 years, right? Like I tell everybody, I'm like, if you're not going to be here in five, 10 years, don't take this job because it's just not worth it. Wow. You're just really inspiring me. I mean, it's a natural tendency to just want to build a lifestyle business so that you can do what you want, when you want, with whoever you want. But you've moved past that concept to really trying to build something that's going to last. And that's that's just incredible. I'd love to talk with you more later about just like how you think about compensation and incentives mainly. We all respond to incentives and how do you incentivize A players to stick around, you know? Yeah, I'd love to have a con- speaking of Speaking of players, though, do you have – let's talk about your storage facilities. Do you have managers there? No, so these are smaller facilities, uh, 200 doors or so each, all remote. Um, how are you managing them? Hey, like, how do you structure that? This is a great conversation to people that are going, okay, Drew, that's awesome. How do you do that? Yeah, so so we picked up uh, both of these facilities, didn't have websites, didn't take credit cards. So we, you know, we take over ownership. Uh, we install a new, we create a new website. We have a call center that takes calls. Um, we're all credit card only. Um, I was talking to one of the tenants yesterday and she was so thankful that we have a website and credit card now. She said, Drew, you've made my life so much better and easier. Thank you. Which is just incredible, right? I mean, we're creating value for the tenant, the customer, and we're also helping the bottom line. I mean, that's just such a classic win-win. It, it's exciting. It a hundred percent. And what about location of your facilities to you? Are they far away or are they pretty close to you so you can drop in or somebody in your team can go drop in? Like, how do you handle auctions with um, and things like that? You know, they're, they're an hour and a half away from me, okay. but, kind of, but kind of where the, port, you know, my other real estate portfolio, it's not too much farther. I mean, I can kind of in one day 
check on my seven or eight assets. And so um, it's not too far away. That's a good setup. Yeah. Yeah. And as, as we grow, I mean, I kind of know where the growth corridors are in Louisiana and Mississippi. And so we're just going to kind of expand out there and, and then continue to try to target some larger assets. That's, uh, you know, I, I, I love what you said too, because um, when we got started out, the same thing is, is, is I took, I, it was, I just think it's so funny looking back and I love talking with people starting out because it just remembers me, but I had a map and, um, you know, I live in Idaho, which means we don't live next to anything, you know, it, it, nothing. <laughs> we are the most isolated Boise is the most isolated metropolitan area in the United States. So for us, it's a six, seven hour drive to get to anywhere that has a population wow. greater of like 30,000 or less. Wow. So it's, you know, and even at 30,000, you may hit one city that has 30,000 along the way. It's just, you know, we're really isolated. So I drew a map around the Northern Rockies. It's, we call it the Northern Rocky Highway Loop. And it goes around central Idaho's all wilderness. And so it goes around the central Idaho wilderness through on the side of Oregon, Washington, Montana, and then clips back over into Wyoming and then back down around Southern Idaho. And I, they're all small towns, right? But I said, this is our loop. This is what we know. This is the area. Now, the top to the bottom of that loop is a nine-hour drive. To do that wow. loop, it's like you're talking about it, you know, it, two days, right? It's not small. But for us, that's normal. Right. That's not like if you're back east, that sounds crazy that you a two two day radius. Right. But for us, that's like, oh, yeah, we'll hit five towns. Right. Um, so <laughs> we're like, OK, this is our loop. We'll look at small towns along this corridor. We understand the economics. We understand why people are going there and we understand the players, the people like when I walk in there and talk to them, I'm not some guy from New York City. I'm walking in being like. Oh, hey, it's storage. What else do you do? Oh, we farm. Oh, nice. What are you farming? Do you do row crops? You got, you know, I mean, we're talking the same language, right? We're all, we're all a bunch of nobody's out here. And, um, that really was beneficial. It was this idea that I knew my area that I was going into, albeit very large. Um, and then after we kind of got stabilized and after that, then we started to look outside that area. Now we're in Kansas. Now we're in, looking in all over the Midwest and the East Coast. But that took a long time for me to get out of that radius um, because I think it comes down to understanding the, like you said, from um, Oak Tree Capital, right? Manage your downside, right? And and that's kind right. of where I was at. I'm like, I need to manage this and that a lot of that downside comes out of understanding, right. Or knowledge, so to speak. Right. Well, I think that's a great advice for new folks. Like with one notable exception that comes to mind who kind of bought a portfolio across the country away, um, you need to stick within a couple hours of your home. You don't need to stick in your hometown, but you know, you understand the people who run these properties. You can speak the lingo, Maybe your area area code is the next area code over. Um, and these things are just important to, to build that relationship starting out. And that's what you're trying to do. You know, 100%. And when I hear people, they're like, you know, oh, I can't do that. Um, I live in the Bay Area and California, which I agree, that's crazy, you know, expensive <clears throat> competition or anything like that. But I'm like, you're literally a couple hours from Nevada or right. Southern Oregon. I'm like, that is... Right. 
that is a fraction of the distance that I was going, and it was still within my area of knowledge, understanding. And I looked at it like this. If I took a Saturday <clears throat> and I could drive there and back, even if it was all day driving, I'd do it. Well, what about Saturday or for the boys? And then there's Sunday <laughs> fun day. I mean, how do I have time for that? Uh, yeah, I come from a farming family. And uh, so that was nothing that I ever understood or, or, or knew. My, my, my father, you know, he uh, grew up in utter poverty. And when, I, when we say utter poverty, it's, it's really interesting, Drew. And maybe you can relate in some areas where you're from. But, like, my father didn't have running water until he was a teenager. My dad is not wow. old. He is uh, 60, right? Um, And he didn't have running water and he poached for food. Um, They, he worked summers in the mountains, you know, chopping down sticks and and wood to try to sell to people. Uh, So it was, you know, and then my mom came from what would be considered the rich or the upper class because they were a farmer. And Uh that's kind of, you know, the background that we grew up in high desert, you know, Southern uh, Southern Idaho. Uh, but you're absolutely right when you say that, because I talk to a lot of people and they're like, listen, we're really not going to give up our social life. And that's hard for me just because I don't understand that. It just doesn't make sense to me because, you know, I have a father that went from that to insurance to making himself, you know, wealthy. And, um, I guess that is a hard one to go because I'm sure, you know, people like that too, that are like, I want to become financially successful. What should I buy and where should I buy it? And I'm like, I, I just right. don't know how to respond to that. Right. A, a lot of people want to be a millionaire so they can spend a million dollars. Yes. That's, that's the opposite of what we're talking about. We're talking about saving a million so you can invest it. And there is the difference. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. I love that. And, you know, that's a big misconception, too, that I think a lot of people, you know, they're like, I'm going to buy a small facility and then I'm set for life because maybe it was worth a million dollars. And it's like, well, that's not exactly how it works, right? It's more important to invest, to learn, and then figure out how to scale. And scale, when I say scale, I don't mean to become Warren Buffett. That's not what I'm talking about. But maybe a handful of facilities that now, yes, you've diversified your risk and you have good enough income where now you are what I would consider truly financially free. Because I view people view financially free as, oh, I, I have three levels. I say, listen, you have financial protection, right, or financial security, which means I can live, but I'm not out having fun. I'm not doing anything, right? And then you have financial uh, uh, like replacement, so financial stability, which replaces your income. And then you have financial freedom, which that's everything that you hope to do or be or need as far as resources go in life. And those three things are very different. And a lot of people don't take to an account that the cost of what it really takes to live. Right. Right. That's awesome. I love I love those kind of three levels. I'm, I'm kind of somewhere in between the first and the third, you know, and working to get to level three one day. And now tell me about your employment and going from you know, employment to self-storage and assets. What's your plan? What was your plan? How did that work? And was that a struggle for you? Employment, like personal employment? Yeah, like having a job and then starting investing and moving away from that. I I, I started my own lawn company when I was 13. And so I've kind of had jobs my whole life. Um, I've never actually been a W-2 employee. I'm a 
I was just like, I'm, I'm a terrible employee. You know, I, I can't do this stuff. So I've been, a, I was a broker in 08 at the worst time to sell commercial real estate, like in the last century. So I kind of cut my teeth being broke. And, um, and through that, I've developed a pretty good muscle for saving and living below my means. And so um, when I made the jump to kind of full-time investing, I had a nice little nest egg, um, which, which was nice. And my wife works a little bit too, but um, yeah, it's, it's hard. There's no easy answer, you know? I, okay. I love that. You were, you know, comfortable being broke. Um you know, that's a that's a big key because a lot of people don't realize when you're investing that capital resources are needed within the business. Capital resources yeah. are needed to um, allow your business to be better in the future. And they're looking at these line items and they don't understand that for me, that capital isn't mine. It's the businesses. And if the business can give me some of that capital, right, but I don't take away from my business for me to destroy my company. And a lot of people think that they're buying that with the sole idea that that is there to serve them when the business is actually there to serve your customers. And you have to manage that capital and that flow really well. And a lot of people just can't say no. They want to suck all the money out of it. And then they're in a spot where they end up having to sell it because they haven't been reinvesting it into it. It's either falling apart. They haven't been expanding. And then after that, they got to go get a job again because now the asset's no longer producing for them. I never wanted right. to get in that spot. I never wanted to get caught and then have to go backwards. Right. That's such a it's such a nuanced point you just brought up that I don't think people will quite understand until you're in the middle of it. But there's so much truth to that statement. Well, and you know, I I did not grow up broke at all. My my dad did. He grew up in extreme poverty, but I did not. I was not ever broke. My dad was in insurance, white collared sales. Then he started up his own brokerage firm later on when I was uh, a teenager, right? But I was lucky, like you were, because you were in there, where I was in sales. So I never yeah. had this standard income that was never, I was never familiar with that. So even when I was making a lot of money, right, I had to be comfortable not making money because I didn't know when it was going to shut off. So right. living on little compared to what I made was just second nature. And when you're a business owner, I feel that one of the greatest downsides of investors and business owners is they get in the way of their own success. They're pulling resources off for their desires, and they're taking that away from their future. Yep. You're 100% right. Um Living below your means and investing the rest is just the key to good long-term, you know, ownership and management. So where are you going from here, man? You're in storage. You're, I mean, you're rocking it the first of the year. What are your plans with your self-storage business and how do you plan on getting there? You know, so we, we, we put up some good systems, I think, to source deals, kind of what we talked about, the three different places to source deals, build relationships with owners, tell the world the business that you're in and talk to brokers. Um, I, I, I'd love to try to buy $10 million of storage this year and see where that takes me. I've, I've got a, a bigger goal for five years, but to go back to like, to go back to Charlie Munger, the most important thing is to take care of the business that's on your desk today. And the business on my desk today is getting these two facilities up and going. I've got a third under contract. And so that's my today goal. Tell me how you valued these things. I'm always interested to know, like when you were looking at it, where you saw the opportunity and where you thought the value was at in comparison to where you bought it from. 
Well, so this is this is great, and this is stuff I love to talk about, which is value. And you know what's great about real estate are the there are a lot of deals you don't need, you don't need spreadsheets for them. Okay, you need maybe a back of the napkin, but you can kind of do it in your head almost. You look at your gross, you kind of take off thirty five percent, make a ten or twelve cap out of it, and you're probably going to make money at it. And so that's what I did for these deals, you know. I looked at, but again, we, we secret shopped. We, we looked at where the rents were, um, but it came down to a price per pound. What's replacement cost? If I'm getting this for 40 bucks a foot with some climate control, it's 85% occupied with no website, no credit card, no REITs in the market. Um, I'll take I feel four. pretty good. That, yeah. You know, like I can do at least as good as this guy's doing. He's 78. He's, he's a great, he's a coon ass. <laughs> And I say that in the nicest, and he speaks pigeon French, like Cajun French. It's beautiful, you know, um, but I can do as good as this guy can. That statement right there was literally my motto when I got started. Like it was like, you know, we talk about downside and upside and it was like, okay, my downside is here. I can do at least as good as he's doing. So I, yeah. I just love that you said that. Cause it's like, that was me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, yes, but, but I want to have controlled growth. I mean, I've, I've seen from afar that growing too quickly and getting over your skis yes. is a bad thing. Yes. And then you're digging your, your lifestyle, like your time away from your family. You're spending all of it in your business to dig out of this thing. Yes. My kids are young. I'm going to be doing deals till I'm 86 and they have to like put me six feet under, Yes, you know, I'm never retiring. I may take off 15 weeks a year to come fly fishing with you and I don't know, but I'm never retiring. Okay. <laughs> I love so, it. I love this idea yeah, too of not growing so fast. Like I, I see a lot of people right now that are just out and it's mass volume and I when and it's not that there's anything wrong with that. Right. Like right now I'd buy everything that I could. Like literally, I, I mean, there's just no end to how much I want to, to buy. But you have the structure. But I have a structure, exactly. And um, I've worked on that structure for a long time to be able to scale properly without making big mistakes. And yep. I see a lot of people that they, they do pretty good, and particularly they do pretty good in really good years. And that gets them in trouble later on. Because they start to ignore really important things at the idea of doing the deal. So the deal yes. becomes more important than your overall return and risk and everything else. And that is a dangerous trap to get in oh. and one that I promised myself that I'd never do. I would rather skip 10 deals. I'd rather skip a thousand deals than do one bad deal. Right. Well, I, I still have these lingering feelings that come up. Listen, I make fees when I buy a deal. Who doesn't want to make more fees? Mm -hmm. uh, we all want to have these sexy metrics. Oh, I have a hundred million dollars under management. Mm -hmm. You know, like who cares if they're cash flowing? Who cares what you know if anybody's making any money? But you, you have to fight those vanity metrics and fight those fees to focus on value, to focus on first principles. Um, and so it's a battle I fight all the time. I, I wish I didn't have those feelings. You know? Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. You know, for me, the my vanity metric is how much did I buy it for and how much is it worth two years ago? Because that shows what I did. It shows right. how good I am at what I do. Um, right. And 
that is the key. And that's how we look at everything we buy. It's what is this going to be in two years? And if it is an exceptional, we just don't buy it. And, and that's not for everybody. I'm not saying that's for everybody, right? I get told all the time, my standards are too high. I get told all the time, you can't get those returns. When we keep buying and we keep doing it. But the point for yeah. me is, well, I may buy one while you're buying four, but my performance on one is so exceptional that right. it, it's it it's a lowering risk for me, right? And it's lowering. And now, too, let me let me get this very clear for anyone that's starting out thinking, oh, okay, well, AJ, what's your metrics? I need to hit it. I was not getting these metrics when I started. Okay, that's also a point I need to make very clear. I was making good decisions, things like that. But now that I am able to, I'm fighting off the desire to do more deals for everything from fees, vanity metrics, and everything else like that, and lower my standards, which I know are achievable for those standards that don't matter. And that's what's important. So I'm not saying everybody, like, unless it's a home run, you shouldn't do the deal. No, because a lot of people, particularly starting out, you know, the odds of you getting something that's a crazy home run, like we see in big development deals or anything else, that's that's not what we're talking about. Uh, I just want to make sure that's clear. Yeah. But that's so again, there's the paradox. You have to get started Bingo. because without you, without saying yes, nothing happens, but saying no is your best weapon. Bingo. And as a capital allocator investor, you have to understand the, the gap in those two things. So, but hats off to you because I'm sure you have an investor base mm -hmm. who's lined up, ready to give you money to take this from 150 million to 300 million in 24 months. Mm -hmm. But what's going to ensure your long-term success in this business is sticking to those principles because the hard times are coming. And when the hard time comes, that's when you get the bathtubs out and you just pile in as much as you can, you know? hundred percent. I mean, once again, we, you know, when we started in the early 2000s, we bought a few small deals. Everybody was making so much money on housing and multifamily. And then we got completely out of the market by 2005, six, because we're going, I, I just, and, and for me, it wasn't at all that I knew a correction was coming. And I always got to make that clear. I'm not that smart. In fact, it was the opposite. I'm like, I'm too dumb to understand how to make money or how to do this. <laughs> so I just got to stop. And so we just stopped. And then afterwards, all of a sudden numbers made sense again to us. So we started buying again. And when I look at that, it's leaning on my money's return, not my perceived intellect that is really important and keeping that in check where I think I know better than my money does, right? That I think that my money that's telling me this doesn't make sense, I'm telling my money, no, you need to be quiet because in four years it's gonna make sense, trust me, I know. And right. as long as we can tame those inner voices as investors, which we always can't, right? My first deal didn't, my first deal, we sold for less than we bought it for. Now, after cash flow, debt down payment, we made money, but we sold it for 20 grand less than we bought it for. I'm not sorry about that deal at all, and I never will be. I understood it. I figured out what wasn't right. I figured out what we learned right, and we moved on, and we just kept getting better from there. So you got to start, but it's more important, like you said, limit those downsides. Focus on what the downsides are, and instead of saying, oh, it's got to be a home run, especially if you don't understand how to make it a home run then you have no metrics to align it up with, right? So focus on those downsides and then focus on the improvements that you can make to make that a really great, stable, cash-producing, value-add asset. And you just, you, you know, you can't go wrong. Yeah, 
No, I, I agree. One of the big tells for me personally is we all have a little spreadsheet or something that we put numbers in. And when I do it all, you know, how I think, and then the returns aren't what I think, then you start going back and looking at your yes. expenses and trimming up expenses. Oh, well, maybe that was, maybe that's only 5,000, not 10,000. There's your red flag. Okay. You got a problem that you probably should just walk away from. Spreadsheet investing. Um, you know, yeah. and you as a broker too, um, or coming from that, you know, that background, um, I like to tell people, you need to make sure that the broker isn't adjusting the financials to meet the price, but the price is reflecting the financials. And this is a big thing that not only brokers, but we do as people. And when I talk to brokers, I'm like, how'd you come up with this number? But this is off, this is off, and this is off. And I'm like, is that the number they wanted? And the broker says, yeah. And I'm like, okay, well then everything in these performance and financials doesn't matter because you were simply adjusting to whatever the owner wanted to justify the price. Good or bad doesn't matter. If the owner says, hey, I want you to sell it at this price, it is what it is. But as a buyer, you need to understand if the price came from financials or if the price came from, or excuse me, I keep saying buyer, the seller. Um, if the price came from that seller, as in, I want $5 million, I'm not selling it for less. And the broker goes, I think I can get you $5 million. That's a very yeah. different conversation than someone saying, I need to sell this. Could you run the financials? Could you look at this asset and determine on what it's worth to go to the market? Those two yeah. things are totally different. And normally you don't know. And so you need to ask. Yeah. I wrote an essay called Never Trust the NOI addressing this same topic. It's just there are so many conflicting incentives going on in a buy and sell transaction, especially through a broker, which brokers provide a lot of value, but it's, you need to be very wary as a buyer and really get in the details because the, the devil's in the details because that's the only place he can hide. hundred percent. I couldn't agree more. And little things too, that you need to understand that, you know, like, I don't know about you, but we've gotten bit because, you know, I wasn't in real estate. So I'm learning this stuff after the fact that, you know, we bought it for, let's say, whatever, 1.2 million. And lo and behold, the owner had built it for 400,000 and his tax basis hadn't adjusted to that 1.2 million. We bought it and now it adjusts up. And I'm like, everything that was on our spreadsheets, as far as that major cost was now wrong. And yeah. that is... You know, I, I've been, I've, I've, I have facilities that we had a fifty thousand dollar tax basis, and it went to a hundred and thirty thousand dollars in less than four years, and it, that's your NOI, right? I mean, it's yeah. so you really need to understand, and the devil in the details is right, and you should be looking at the reality of the situation, and not trying to manipulate that NOI to fit your desire but the NOI should reflect the reality of the performance. Yep. I knew about taxes increasing and that's still coming. It'll still surprise you, you know? Um, and I also think it's good to have kind of a ballpark expense ratio. Maybe you run yours at 40% or 35%, but, but you can kind of put that in there and compare it to your ratio and be like, wait a second, my spreadsheet says it's only running at 29%. Everything else is running at 35. Let me go back and check to make sure that this is accurate so I don't have any surprises. No, uh, that's such a good point. You know, it's funny. We got, I'm waiting, like you, I'm waiting for a contract on two facilities to come back to me today. They, the broker said that it was signed and everything. But when we were looking at these financials, um, one of the things that the brokers did, which I was so impressed with, they literally won me forever. 
And and two, all the brokers listening to this, this is really important because after I looked at the financials that the broker sent over and I did just some quick little research, verified a bunch of stuff, I told them not only put it under contract, I said, I want you to send me every single deal you're looking at. The reason why was because I'm like, you're actually underwriting this correctly so I can trust what you bring to me. And they literally, they got a buyer forever. I mean, it's one of those people where I'm like, I'll, I'll probably buy six or seven deals out of 10 that they send me. But the two deals that they sent me, they were small deals. And what, what normally you like to see or what normally brokers will do, these were on totally ep- uh, opposite sides of the city, right? So they had to be run independently. The two of them together came up to 85,000 square feet. Normally what we see is the brokers will act as if the two are together and they'll give an expense ratio as if, right, they're one facility. Well, they didn't. They isolated both facilities, and because they were both smaller, they gave a 45% expense ratio, which is reality of the situation, right? And right, so, with the manager, for sure. With the manager, exa- yes, with the manager. And so I looked at this, and I go, okay, I, they underwrote this perfectly right. They understood it. Their background came from it, as opposed to coming back to me trying to argue why two facilities with two managers that are not even close to each other should justify a 20% expense ratio, which is a conversation that I have every single day, which just blows my mind because it's just Mm -hmm. not reality. But once they came back with this expense ratio and this idea that they under uh, the price came from the underwriting. It was a breath of fresh air, to say the least. Um, But those are the things that you need to look out for. And that's where the benefit obviously is. So when you're underwriting, like you said, have an idea of what the expense ratio should be given the circumstances so you have something to benchmark it off of is really important. So so backing into this problem you're just talking about, um, so it's kind of 40, 45,000 square feet and above you're cut off for having a manager as opposed to going with the remote virtual model? Yeah, so the remote virtual model is dependent on uh, a lot of things. First of all, I don't own anything that's under 50,000 square feet at this point. I don't think I own anything under 60,000 square feet or maybe more than that. Um, uh, So our average facility is like 90,000 square feet right now. Now, that was definitely not true a long time ago, and these two facilities are not. them together are 85,000 square feet. So we're going to, we're going to look at it, but what we'll do is we will, or we're looking at the cost to implement more of a virtual thing, which they don't have any of it. They don't have websites. They don't have online leasing. They don't have call centers. We will implement all of that. Right. And then we'll see if we could be running out of one facility with a, uh, one manager and a part timer. Right. And that part timer mm-hmm. will go back and forth from each facility. And then we don't have to have two full-timers at both of the facilities and still get the same thing. So we're, we're going to do a hybrid probably where we have a, 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 a base facility and then a satellite facility, which is the smaller of the two, and run that one automated and then have more, act like more like a regional manager. And then once we do that, we can buy more facilities around the area because now we have a base and a presence. And so, satellite. yep, it, and now the expenses will be justified and we can lower it. Does that make sense? Yeah, that perfect sense. I think that's where on a separate topic where remote work is going. I don't think it's all remote. I don't think it's all going back 100%. It's, it's this kind of remote satellite model. That's really interesting. Yeah, I, you know, I just did a, a YouTube video, I think it was last week, on automation and automated facilities. And I was actually in a conference, and it was funny once because um, 
somebody got was mad. I was at a panel. It was one of the big conferences, and it, you know, one of the guys stood up and basically said, "Listen, if you're a manager, I'm your worst nightmare because I'm going to end all your jobs." And he said that on stage, and I was like, I kind of turned and looked at him, and was like, "Okay, well, you know, for all of us that own facilities that are large, not only is that not true, but we have the first automated, truly keyless storage facility in the nation. It runs completely off a cell phone. And at that facility, we have two full-time employees because it's 140,000 square feet. Now, if you're running facilities and imagine the logistics of internal drive aisles matched with people, matched with auctions, cleaning out units, lock checks, on and on and on and on and on and on and on that may be going on in that facility, you would know that that is not a reality. Right. Right. And if you own smaller facilities, you also know that there's not a reality in which you can operate profitably that facility with a manager in it. And it seems like there's been a war with these two things in self-storage. And the idea is that it's not one of the extreme, but it's in the middle. And what you're talking about and how you're managing is really the key. It's a middle thing. There's no such thing as a manless one, right? A manless storage facility doesn't exist. Who's clearing out the unit? Who's working on site? But a full-time person that represents and is customer-facing, there's a huge segment of the market where that is no longer even viable. Right. And I'm assuming that's kind of how you're doing it, right? You have your facilities. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. 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 It, I've got a great kind of commercial cleaning crew who kind of goes, you know, two hours every other week to handle some of these items, spray roundup, sweep out units. Um, we do, we do free locks and have a small setup fee. And so they'll replace the disc locks and the units that have been turned over, um, you know, kind of basic blocking and tackling stuff here. Bingo. And you know, what's funny the, the, the small facilities that we were, we originally had, we did the same thing 15 years ago, but all we did is we farmed it out with some local trustworthy people. So we would farm it out to like a local real estate agent where we'd say, Hey, listen, I, I need your help. Um, when we have a unit come due, I'll pay you a hundred bucks or whatever it was, you know, um, for you to go check on the unit every week, make sure our cleaning crews, just like you're doing, went and cleaned it up. Right. And then also if, if someone needs to be let into a unit, um, at the time there was no online system. So they needed to go down and have that person sign a lease physically. Um, but it was still managed the exact same way you're talking about even back then. The only difference mm -hmm. is now you can do it so efficiently. Right. It's, it's incredible how efficient you can run without having a manager on site in these facilities. And it's getting better and better and better. I mean, the technology that's coming out, I'm going to do a whole thing. You know, you've heard Lance on it. You know, we've just put a ton more money into tenant and some of these softwares. We're talking about facial recognition and identification wow. with driver's license that wow. is bank level status approved by the federal government to do identity tracing. So that way they can sign lease and the software system can identify the face aligned with the um, the license to verify that the signer is the actual living signer at that moment. Incredible. Wow. I mean, this is what's so exciting to me. I mean, look, I, I love collecting checks from our industrial properties, but it doesn't really get the juices flowing. I mean, we're on a five-year lease. It's great. But in self-storage, there's levers to pull to create value yes. in a quick fashion. But then, too, there's rapid change. I mean, you've talked about the consolidation coming here. But, you know, 15 years ago, multifamily was kind of 
80% mom and pop, 20% institutional. That's completely flipped. And self-storage is a similar environment that it's going to be five, maybe 10 years, and it's going to flip. And um, it's just an ex- it's an exciting industry. It's it's dynamic, to borrow one of your words. It's yeah. very dynamic. No, I I just couldn't agree more, man. Well, hey, man, I've taken like an hour and a half of your time, but um, I could talk to you all day, and I'm sure we'll be talking more. You're you're just doing awesome things. And the end of this year, we got to have another one to see how your year ended up. Uh, pros, cons, everything that you're doing. Um, thank you so much for coming on and sharing. And where can our listeners get a hold of you? I'm sure lots of people could have questions for you. Yeah, so I'm on Twitter. Uh, I think my Twitter handle's D Pierce eight five. Maybe we can put that in the show notes or something. Uh, Drew Pearson. Uh, my email is Drew at Pearson Partners P E, and uh, my website is Pearson Partners P E, like PaulEdward.com. Um, feel free to reach out to me. And I've got a question uh, for you. I've got two quick questions for you, if that's okay. Yeah, uh, just one second. We'll put that in the show notes for you. And it is at D-P-E-A-R-85 on Twitter. But we'll put all that in the show notes. So sure, I'm happy to answer anything. Cool. So one of my one of my theories is riches and niches, mm-hmm. right? Uh, self-storage is a niche within commercial real estate. Within self-storage, there's RV and boat storage. Mm-hmm. Have you given much thought to developing boat and RV storage? To me, it seems like a huge growing field, but I don't know how to gauge demand of RV. How the how do you do that? Okay. Um, man, this, this is a cool subject. So I have a friend um, and he, Scott, all he does is this. All he does is boat and RV storage. And this was something that I really didn't know about. Or, I mean, I knew about it, right? Like, of course, we all know, all right, listen, there's boat and RV storage, right? Um, But I didn't know the extent at which this is. And he has, I think, 10 facilities. And you're talking about, like, three-story boat parking indoors. Like, I was amazed and he is absolutely killing it. It's this huge niche. Um, I think it is a it is a good niche, and I think it can be a very profitable niche. But it is a lot bigger than I ever knew or expected. And um, I think that though someone's starting out, it's a great niche to go into because it is completely, completely overlooked because the yield to space is not the same as storage. And so people don't want to go into it, which doesn't make sense because if you understand yield the cost, you're getting a return on your money, right? Right. So if you say, hold on, if if I'm getting a yield off buying a storage facility of 8%, but I can get a boat and RV storage and get a yield of 15%, why do you care if the... You know what? You see what I'm saying? What, what what are we doing? I mean, why don't we do it? Is it because you can't allocate enough capital to really scale that business? So it's just mom and pop? Yeah, I think it's limited in its scope, right? So there's it. Um, the people that I know doing, which I'll have them on the podcast, um, are doing in places like Southern California, 
where they're at marinas and they're buying locations oh, wow. and different things like that. But they're also doing it throughout like Arizona's place like that, where they're doing huge RV covered. So it's this whole industry um, that's coming up. One of the biggest problems I think you have with it right now is traditionally speaking, like RV parking, like people will take their RV parking and turn it into storage because people just aren't going to pay a lot of money to normally speaking do an RV. So building an entire facility, which is only RV parking, uh, the cost of land right now is so high that you need a lot of yield from those parking spots to make it work. And it usually just doesn't pencil. Um, but I say that, but then there's guys (laughs) like my friend Scott that's out doing it and he's killing it. And what he's doing is he's focusing on niches that have $500,000 RVs. So they're coming in parking and they're charging, you know, whatever it is, $600 a space. They don't care. They have a trickle charge. That's a sticky tenant. Exactly. And they need certain things for their RV, right? When you have a $500,000 asset, you're not parking it out in the weather. That's not happening. So, um, and with all the new HOA rules and everything else like that, uh, I I think, Drew, you you really are onto something. And people that are looking to capitalize on that niche within self-storage will do extraordinarily well over the next five years. Um, We're building a location right now in an area that has very similar economics to the boat storage in Southern California, just with RVs. And we're dedicating two massive buildings to indoor, climate-controlled, different things like that for RV toy parking, in which at that facility we are going to charge what normally would be crazy high rates. But we did this with one facility that we had in the entire back building. We devoted to huge indoor RV parking. And this was six years ago, and we charged $5 or $500 for a unit to give you any idea in that market, the average indoor parking for RV storage was like 50 bucks. This is a really low paying market. Um, we filled it up in two weeks and we've had a waiting list for six years. Wow. And so the demand is there, but it's making sure that the demand at the scope. So that building that we did, you know, you're talking about 30 units, right? Not 500 and not, so right. that's, got that's, it. that's where you got to get how much demand it's is scale. there. It's a scale. It's a scale issue. Yep. It's a scale yeah. issue. Okay. Certain markets right. though can absolutely like you're down in like Louisiana, different places, Florida, things like that. These are hot spots for boat parking and people that buy these oh, yeah. expensive boats, they don't, it, that's nothing to them. The service of a boat comes yeah. with the, the ticket of it and RVs, these big yeah. RVs. So great question. All right, last last question. Uh, what's your favorite river to fish in Idaho? Oh man, dude, you, that's a holy cow! You're putting me on the spot here. Okay, so we, we got to go over a few ones. Of course, Henry's Fork, which is just world yeah. winner, right? It, it's classic. classic Henry's Fork. But also, too, I got to go with the South Fork of the Boise River. Very few people even know it exists. It's up in the mountains. Um, Cookie cutter, natural rainbows, not put in. 18, 25 inches, like all of them. And they are aggressive. The hatches are massive, consistent. They are abundant. And they're some of the most beautiful rainbows you've ever seen. And it's just not as well known. So, um, you call me when you want to go, I will get a plane ticket that day to go and fish that with you. Now we're talking, man, this summer, the hatch, I'm going to hold you to that. All right. Come on. (laughs) This was a ton of fun. Thank you. Hey, thank you, man. We'll talk to you soon. 